CoinWorld Plus is your new way to collect, manage your inventory, digitally authenticate coins, create your want list, buy and sell coins, and much more. Learn more about CoinWorld Plus at CoinWorldPlus.com or download the app now at Google Play or the App Store. Welcome to the Coin World Podcast with your host, Jeff Stark. And as I've said from day one of this show, this is a big tent hobby. There's a lot of room for folks. And Larry Jewett. And learning has been such a tremendous amount of this journey. The Coin World Podcast. We hope everyone's having a great time on your numismatic journey. It's time for the Coin World Podcast. I'm Larry Jewett. And I'm Jeff Stark, and boy, are we excited this week. We got to speak, or I got to speak anyway, to Mark Lovemo, the author of a new book about South Korean numismatics. And uh, don't let that deter you from listening because uh, there's some really interesting topics to explore there. And uh, of course, we're going to have our usual bevy of historical content, trivia, maybe some lame puns and all that. Uh, Right, Larry? (laughs) Oh, absolutely. And uh, that's definitely not going to deter me because I'm looking forward to hearing what Mark has to say because it's always been one of those situations where the uh, numismatics of the world seems to be something that's very exciting to me. Now, granted, we've got a lot of great things going on in the United States. And, you know, by the fact that we see the coins in the uh, in change and that type of thing that we, uh, I mean, we see these coins a lot. But the idea is that early on, I started to find out because I always did like the Canadian uh, money because I, I love the beaver on the back of the five cent coin and, and love the things that they've done there. So I know a little bit about that. Then started finding out things about Mexican money and then just started to realize that, wow, there's just a lot of things going on in the world out there and world coinage and world uh, paper money to a degree has always been something that's kind of interested in. And having the opportunity to hear what Mark has to say about one particular part of the country, and it's a part of the uh, part of the world, actually, one particular part of the world. Uh, my, my stepson was actually stationed in South Korea, and many who were in the military have been in that region as well. So it, it does hit close to home to a lot of folks. So I'm certainly looking forward to that. But, uh, you know, I just want to make that part of a discussion about world coinage and who better to have that discussion with when the senior editor in the world coin section of coin world you yourself so i'm interested in what you have to say about world coins other than it pays your bills hey you know i i love world coins and i've learned so much about world coins uh in doing this job and in traveling to whether it's the new york international or the world money fair in berlin um you know, it, it, there's just, I, I don't often do this, but, you know, if I catch an episode of Jeopardy, uh, there are many times I sit there and I go, oh, I know that. And, you know, the, the rest of that statement is because of coins. And that actually happened a week or two ago at Trivia Night. There was, I can't even remember the question now, but... um Oh, it was about Tasmanian tiger, like the, you know, the extinct animal. And, you know, what was the name of this, you know, dog-like blah, blah, blah. And I went, oh, Tasmanian tiger. I know that because I've written about the Tasmanian tiger coins. You could probably get a whole pack of Tasmanian tiger coins, at least five to ten different uh, issues out there. So, uh, you know, things like that, that uh, world coins, when I came to Coin World, I, I knew n- almost nothing about them. And 
I, you know, I, I had, well, I almost, I knew almost nothing about us coins for that matter comparatively, but, uh, I mean, I was a collector and I was always the coin guy, but, um, you know, you realize when you get dropped into this position at that beginning, how little you actually do know, uh, when set alongside, you know, the, the real experts, but I, I've just, I've learned so much. It's been a pleasure and a joy to pursue it in that regard. And, um, so yeah, I, I hope that some of that interest and passion and the, um, you know, the excitement of world coins comes through. Mark certainly has, uh, has that, and he wouldn't have put together this fantastic 400 page book. I mean, this is a ginormous book, nice paper, full color throughout. It's, it's really, really uh, neat. So you want to stick around for that. Yeah, I, and it's interesting that you use the Tasmanian tiger because when I think of world coins, I think about you know the idea that one of the things that we can find there, and you've done this a lot of times in photo finish, is the number of animals that you can find there. I know my wife has been very interested in elephant type coins, and uh, you know we we don't see elephants at all on U.S. Coins. We don't see them on many other nations as well because we don't have elephants as uh, running wild around here. And, you know, just the idea that the different animals can resonate. I remember our episode we had with Coin Zoo and, and different ideas of the animal coins and coins of the world that have animals and paper money for that matter. But just the idea that a lot of these designs are what really intrigues. And they can provide a portal for somebody who's looking for something to collect or somebody who wants to get started on something. And they like these particular types of things. And that's where the world coinage opens up better opportunities in a lot of respects for, for a lot of people. We do see, I mean, we see regularly, even on new issues, I would believe, we see a lot of aquatic animals and land animals and that type of thing. Oh my gosh, yes. Uh, in, in fact, uh, earlier in the week, I was working on a future photo finish. I don't want to disclose the topic, but I found five things that work for it. I want to find one more. And in doing that, I found, I saw six other coins and I go, oh, I could do something with those. And, th and there's just, there's just so many topical ways for it. Oh, and another thing, when I was looking for my friend, uh, for, um, uh, here locally in St. Louis, it's in a couple coin clubs that she wants certain new issues. And as you know, she, she came to the ANA and was sort of, you know, baffled by the, the absence of a lot of new issue type stuff, uh, at, in a broader way. And I said, you know, a lot of this stuff just, you know, it, it's niche market, it's, it's giftables, it's, uh, you know, a low mintage type stuff. And there's so many distributors around the world that take their little allotment and they know that, you know, they can call up one of their customers or, or whatever. And Hey, I, I have this thing that you might be interested in. There's not a, you know, there's not a lot of program material out there in, in the coin context of, you know, program material is something that's, it's, available in a, in a large enough quantity to support an advertising uh, promotion around it. You know, you think about stuff that's on the TV shows or, um, you know, it, aver whatever's advertised in the back of Parade Magazine or VFW Magazine or whatever. It's something that's readily available. Um, 
because you know they want to be able to obtain a, a large enough quantity because they have to sell a lot to cover the advertising cost and and to make money and, and all that and when you're talking about some coins with 555 mintage 888 mintage whatever uh, for the world there's there's just you know there's there's stuff that I don't even know about that's coming out um you know, because there are so many sales venues and so many places that uh, that do special issues, they they contract to make coins that they only want to sell to their customers. Um, you know, so th- there's just it, it really is. It's exciting on one hand and and it's exhausting in another just to stay in touch with the new issues market then to go into oh gosh you know i want this 1950s nepalese coin that was made from a a a bullet from world war ii a cartridge from world war ii good luck finding one you know you go out on the a and a floor and i always look for those when i when i'm at a show because i like to get them if i can find them and you just don't see them you just don't say there's, there's a lot of things out there. There's so many coins and you know, the common stuff is common for a reason and you always see it. The other stuff, not so much. Yeah. Well, even the common stuff to somebody who's looking to collect something, somebody who's uh, interested in a lower price point to get into things. I mean, a lot of times we'll spend uh, the, when the wife and I go to the shows, we'll spend the times sitting down with the dealer and going through the boxes. A lot of times they're red boxes. Uh, sometimes they're even tubs and, I think you and I have been through the the same situation watching there. We're just going through and finding these things that are pretty much, you know, neat, neat things to look at. I mean, I bought coins that weren't necessarily in connection with this because I like the looks of it. And uh, that's just a lot of things that appeals to me there. And, you know, just the idea, even the circulated coinage has some attraction from some of these countries because of, you know, you sit there and you kind of look at it, your mind kind of drifts off and it's like, what were they thinking when they did this? Why did they do this? And it's just like if you tried to collect all the coins that had Queen Elizabeth on them, just for example, just like, oh, my goodness, you know, you'd be uh, it would be a, almost a nearly never ending quest because of so many uh, so many countries using that. But when you find something and you uh, look at it and go, what is this? That's kind of interesting. And, you know, you just kind of look at it and uh, you, you end up making that purchase. If if you wanted one of every coin that shows Queen Elizabeth on it, I don't think Warren Buffett could afford that. There you go. <laughs> because there are so many giant kilo gold coins and other things like that. There are unique pieces, uh, you know, there's there's just there's just way too many. Way too many. And uh, you know, yeah, do do you want a common uh decimalization switch switch over set uh <clears throat> from you know the 60s or 70s from the royal mint oh those are ubiquitous do you want uh the john lennon charity gold strike uh that you know that sold at auction several years ago to raise money for for a charity and there's only one known good luck prying it out of the hands of whoever owns it yeah, definitely. I mean, and that's even, we're just even talking the coins right now, but I mean, when you get in the paper money, I mean, all the colors and all the, uh, I mean, I even have a note from Belarus with a squirrel on it. I mean, that's just the idea that, you know, there's saying things are so much different out there that it's just so neat. But I mean, I just want to say that here because a lot of times we have uh, folks that may just be 
uh, getting into the hobby right now, looking for what they want to do. And uh, the, the idea, consider world coins. I mean, there's a, a lot of opportunity out there for you. And uh, especially when we say, you know, collect what you like. And that's pretty much what got me started on it right there. I mean, I had the the Whitman folders. I had the, uh, the winged Liberty Head dimes. I had all that. And just the idea that when we got the idea to see into the world coins that was just something really really cool to me but we'll be talking about the the paper money side of things uh someday in the future but right now i want to go ahead and drift back a little bit in time because uh you know recently we've been talking about uh some of the activity we mentioned that there's criminal activity has been increased but uh when we go back to this week in numismatic history the idea that criminal activity is far from a new idea because looking back on September 1st of 1674, Joseph Blanchard and George Grimes were charged with coining base metal in Massachusetts. So it was a crime 350 years ago for these guys, as was pointed out in this week in numismatic history. So I just wanted to say that, you know, it's been around for a while and uh, one other thing that I want to uh, briefly touch on as we take it in more into the uh, 21st century now, there was an entry in one of the uh, This Week in Numismatic Histories for September 2nd that goes to the year 2003, and that's when the company Hitachi announced their development of the what they called the RFID, which is Radio Frequency Identification Tags that were suitable for emplacement in currency. And that, I guess you could say that's the genesis of some of the technology that's been used on activities like CoinWorld Plus, where you have the uh, tag, the, uh, the near-field communication tags that we use on CoinWorld Plus. And uh, so it was just interesting to find out that that uh, actually came about for use in placement in currency is what they, how they viewed that. And that was uh, almost 20 years ago. Interesting. Wow. I, you know, speaking of the uh, 300 and some years ago, I, I believe, you know, back in the day, um, to counterfeit is death. That's a, um, a statement that would often appear on paper money. And uh, there, that certainly was uh, <laughs> the, the um, uh, justice meted out to those caught doing that in many instances. That's how serious uh, that was considered back in the day. But it is unfortunate to uh, talk about crime. You know, we, we had a, there was a spate of crime at the ANA, uh, but I'm reminded in looking at uh, the August 30th, 1993 issue of Coin World in doing this week in Coin World history, they had two news articles here about thefts, including uh, a story. It wasn't front page, but uh, it, it was pretty big. It certainly mattered to the dealer affected. Um, there was a, a theft of the entire numismatic inventory from a New York dealer's car as he returned from the 102nd anniversary convention, the ANA convention in Baltimore. And, um, you know, this, this guy's uh, Binghamton, New York. And uh, there was there was some fantastic rarities, uh, double dyes and and uh, overdates and just you know and 1856 flying eagle pattern. I mean, they're just your nice a nice mix of of stuff. But then a couple pages, three four pages later, there was a a story about a theft in Wisconsin, eight to ten thousand dollars worth of coins and paper money. Which, you know, that's a lot of money now, but it certainly was a lot of money <laughs> back in 
1993. So, you know, just a reminder that uh, to be ever vigilant, this is um, <clears throat> this is a, such a rewarding hobby, but you still have to take measures to be safe and smart with that. Um, and, you know, that's it's something that, uh, you know, is, is a thread throughout uh, throughout the hobby. So that that's what jumped out to me, certainly in light of what happened uh, in recent weeks at the show and, and our coverage of that. Yeah. And it, it is happening. It continues to happen. I mean, we all have a responsibility. I mean, it can't be, you can't be pointing fingers at it. We all have, it's our job to, to make sure that we do the best we can. You see something, say something type thing, and we're going to continue to be going to shows. We have to be ever vig- uh, diligent or vigilant out there because the element, the criminal element doesn't care. And yeah. uh, they're going to uh, just find whatever they can. Fortunately, in the letters for the August 30th of uh, 1993 issue, there were no references to any kind of criminal activities. But I found because we're talking about uh, world coins, there was a letter in reference to uh, a subject that actually was uh, very prominent at the World's Fair of Money, too. And that deals with Philippine coins, coins from the Philippines. There was a response to a letter writer's letter from two weeks previous asking why most U.S. coin collectors do not collect U.S. Philippine coins and, for another matter, why they do not collect the coins from the six U.S. mints that were struck for 20th century foreign nations. It says most U.S. collectors see only the coins of the United States and collect those. So most U.S. dealers sell those coins because this is where the big money is made. Most people in the United States know little or nothing of the U.S. minted foreign coinage, and you can include most U.S. coin collectors and dealers in that statement. Many of those U.S. minted world coins are hard to locate in the local U.S. coin market, for most U.S. minted world coinage was shipped to the ordering country. Earlier this year, I ran ads and used direct mailings to selected U.S. dealers and collectors to introduce them to the world of U.S. minted 20th century foreign coinage. There was not one order. And in the advertisement, a free copy of a guidebook about that to help anyone interested in putting together a complete world collection of World War II wartime coinage. At the Baltimore ANA coin convention, I was told by all coin publishing firms that there is way too little interest in both of those U.S. minted coin areas to make publishing a guidebook type worthwhile. I think the attitude changed a little bit since uh, that letter was posted by Mr. Harry Shear of Baltimore. Hmm. And then there was one other letter as reader question slabs. And it says, I'm really puzzled about something and maybe somebody can explain it to me. And there was an explanation offered by the editor later on after that. It says, why is it that a nice coin graded in slab by ANAC sells for 20 to 35% less than the same identical coin slab by the numismatic guarantee at that time corporation and the professional coin grading service? I've purchased several coins in ANAC slabs and I've yet to be unhappy with the grade assigned to the coin. I certainly can't say the same about some of the coins I've purchased in the other slabs. And that was from Don Newkirk out of Colorado. The answer was the market dictates the level of acceptance of any third-party grading services product. More buyers accept PCGS and NGC graded coins than ANAC graded coins. Therefore, prices tend to be higher for those coins. 
Also, keep in mind that there may be subtle differences between the grading criteria used by the various services. And I think that question may still prevail with some of the newer collectors here today. But that was from the letters of August 30th of 1993. Hmm. Uh, <clears throat> really interesting because I love the U.S. Mint struck world coinage, uh, especially of the World War II era, the Australian. Australian, the Filipino, to call back to that, uh, or, you know, that reference. And, um, you know, there's some others, Netherlands, um, East Indies, that kind of thing. It, it's just a neat, uh, neat topic. And, um, there's, there's so much fun to be had. And, and actually a, uh, a friend in a local club here recently has told me that that's a collecting area of of his and he just needs the tough ones there's some very 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 rare uh dutch pieces that were sort of off year off metal type issues kind of like how the you know the u.s has the bronze 1943 and steel 1944 those uh strikes or you know the varieties if you will so it's a fun topic uh people looking for a new pursuit uh should definitely consider it because you have the fact that it struck it in the u.s but it's a world coin you, you know if you're looking at the world war ii era that's another element to it a lot of these are silver not all of them but a lot of them so you know you have that little twist as well fun fun area um but, uh, you know, there's always something to learn. Maybe you didn't know uh, that about the U.S. Mint and world coinage. Um, maybe you did happen to know, though, the answer to last week's trivia question. Oh, yeah. And uh, I'm just wondering, you know, we, we had Carla Hoffman on and we talked about women in the hobby. So I thought about, well, who was the first female U.S. Mint director? And you probably know this. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's been almost, it's been more than 90 years, uh, or almost 90 years since, uh, she was made mint director. Do you have any idea the answer to that question? Well, yes, because it happens to be the, this lady in particular is, uh, more than one occasion. She was the first of something because we're talking about Nellie Taylor Ross, and a lot of people say it's Taylor, but it's not. It's Taylor, T-A-Y-L-O-E. Nellie Taylor Ross, before she became the first female mint director, she was the first governor of a state in the United States. And I'm not sure, but I think she may have been the only female governor of this particular state in the state of Wyoming. Don't know if that's been eclipsed in the last hundred years since she uh, got that position. But yeah, she was, uh, I mean, there's not a whole lot of first left for uh, for women these days because you can see that they're, they're knocking them off left and right. Of course, uh, Ventress Gibson now, the female mint director, the first uh, woman of color to hold the position. But uh, you have to go back a ways to uh, after her term as governor of the uh, state of Wyoming, then Nellie Taylor Ross, I think she became mint director in like 1933. I think she was appointed by Franklin Roosevelt back in the 1930s. You have checked all the boxes and you are correct. She is the only woman to serve as governor of Wyoming, which I want to say that Wyoming was like the first state to give women the right to vote. So, or to acknowledge the right to vote for women. So um, it, it's, um, <clears throat> you, you were right. Uh, fun fact, correct. You nailed it. So now that you've, you've met that challenge, let's see 
if you can meet the next challenge. I, you know, in honor of Mark's book, you're going to hear this great interview just in a few moments. Um, I wanted to pick something related to South Korean numismatics. And I got to thinking there is a circulating coin right now in South Korea that for a time, especially many, several decades ago, was confused with another circulating coin of the world. And there's a vast disparity in face value equivalent. So the 500 won coin at time of recording is worth about 37 cents. And I want to say in the last couple of years, it's been as high as 45 cents. Neither here nor there. 37 cents right now. The coin that it's often confused with is, let's just say, shall we say, um, much has a, 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 a much greater face value. And so maybe you know the answer. I think you have an inside track on this. I, I won't give that away. Uh, maybe saying that is too much. Uh, but listeners out there, if you have any idea, you know, think about it. Uh, listen to the interview. I don't think we talked about that with uh, with Mark. Uh, he certainly mentioned it in the book, and that's where I learned of it. So um, you have till next episode to think about that. Maybe you cheat and look it up. I don't care. Um, and and I'll I'll come back in in a week or so and and see what you came up with. How about that? That sounds like a deal. But I, I really I'm. I, I'm eagerly anticipating this interview since I wasn't a part of it here. So I, I can't wait to hear it. The Coin World Podcast is delighted today to be joined by Mark Lovemo, who is the author of a new book about a fascinating era, era or area rather. Well, it's a fascinating era and a fascinating area, South mm -hmm. Korean coinage. Uh, thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you, Jeff. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, hey, it was the least I could do, especially after seeing the book and meeting you at the ANA show a few weeks ago. Now, um, we can get into the book and all that in a in a minute. But before we do that, I want to find out a little bit about you and your collecting journey and how it all began, because we know that uh, every collector has an origin story. So what's, you know, like a, like a superhero, what's your origin story? <laughs> well, my, my origin story. Well, I'm, I'm from Minnesota and, uh, I got a, you know, a degree in history and then I thought I might become a teacher. So what I did is I took a, uh, a certificate course to go teach English in Korea. And I spent about three years in Korea from about 1993 to 1996. And I lived there for about three years teaching English. And then I only got really interested in numismatics after we returned to the USA when my brother gave me an almost complete year set of Lincoln cents. And I soon got into those coins. I got those coins into a Dansko album, and I've been upgrading the coins in them to an average grade of about extra fine for the coins in 1909 to 1935, and at least MS-63 for all the later dates. And I got interested in South Korean coins, specifically when I started looking up the key dates in the, uh, the South Korea series, and began picking up these coins in very nice grades with good eye appeal in the early 2000s at shows and online here in the United States. And people ask me how I got into South Korean coins. I really, you know, Jeff, I don't really have an answer other than that I have a 
a general interest in 19th and 20th century Korean history. And these coins being rather, you know, contemporary pieces themselves sort of fit into that general area of interest. Awesome. No, I, I love that. Now, um, is uh, that, that's pretty cool, though, that your brother got you involved. So you, we thank your brother for that. But it, it's kind of, you know, it's unfortunate you were there in South Korea and, and you had access to all this stuff. And, <laughs> and yet you, you know, no awareness, no interest. Um, I, I did find uh, in looking you up and doing the research for this that uh, you know, about the three years in South Korea, what was the, um, you know, just not numismatically, what was the sort of most challenging aspect of that being, um, uh, uh, you know, an interloper in a, uh, in a strange land? Uh, I don't want to use foreigner. Foreigner always to me has a negative connotation, but, mm. you, you know, you were there um, in an educational context and, and sort of got your feet wet in teaching. You're a teacher now, I understand. That's true. Uh, so what was that like and what were some of the challenges and lessons that, uh, that that experience gave you? Well, it was really a great time. It was, it was, you know, I was in my early twenties. It was Korea at that time was really fun to be in. It's still really fun to be in even more so nowadays, probably, but it was great, you know, because it was so first time, you know, whenever you do something and leave your country and go to a, another land and see another culture, it's, it's so interesting and so fascinating. And I just, I ate it up. I ate up the history. I traveled around the country quite extensively. Well, some of the people I worked with would travel to other countries in Asia. I traveled around Korea because I, I was there to see Korea, to experience Korea. So yeah, it was, it was fabulous. The challenges, not too many. <laughs> it really was not too many. I had amazing students, an amazing company I worked for, and it was, it was just great. It was just a great time to be alive. Awesome. Awesome. Hey, you know, I, that's, um, I, I love travel, but I'm admittedly not a, not as brave <laughs> as you and, and wouldn't go pull up stakes and, and live somewhere in a, a, you know, a country where the language is just so different. I mean, it's one thing even to say, well, you know, Spanish, at least the, the letters, you know, you can sort of suss think some things out, but True. you know, you, you that, that is just, to me, that's such a barrier, both to the travel, but also I would think to collecting. Um, how how did you? I mean, is that true? And then how did you work through that? And and maybe later we can talk about why collectors shouldn't let that be a, a detriment if they want to pursue the area. Yes, you know, language, especially if you're going to study, you know, a series of coins from, you know, a that originate from a country where the language is not, you know, a Roman, you know, letter alphabet language, or, you know, a language that's very, very unfamiliar to you, you have to basically learn the language. And that's what I did when I was there. I studied, um, I studied since then, since I had come back also. And, uh, yeah, so some language facility is absolutely necessary. Yeah. So I, you know, I have indeed gone very deeply into Korean sources, and, you know, with, with repeated exposure, the researcher can kind of build up their vocabulary and facility with reading such numismatic related texts, especially, especially if you dive deep in numismatics, you can really get good at that terminology in that new language that you're learning. And, you know, having done that, it's allowed me now to research, to uh, read such texts without too much translation to English, although I still do translate quite a bit. It has also made me much better able to use online translation machines, 
which work better if you know where phrase breaks are in the source language. You know, you have to use that return key to break the uh, source language into smaller chunks for better translation. Uh, Noam Chomsky, who is a, he's known as a linguist. Nowadays, he's kind of a left-wing nutty professor, but he was, I think, initially known in the late 1950s as a, uh, as a linguist. And he has said that online translation machines are like a bulldozer. And I kind of agree with that. They kind of, they kind of more or less clean up the space, but you have to really break down the language into chunks that will that will make it easier for the translation machine to work. However, I would I would not consider myself a Korean speaker. I'm still really in you know, really learning. It takes a long time to get really good at you know at learning Korean. Anyway, you know, being a Korean speaker, I don't think would have been much help with many of the historical text resources which I had to access from the Bank of Korea and the Korean Mint sources anyway, is that these texts up to the mid-1990s were written in an older mixed orthography of Chinese characters and Korean Hangul alphabet that was then normally reserved for more serious genres in Korean literature, such as history and numismatics. So the biggest barrier wasn't always really, you know, Korean, but really those sources that were so heavily, you know, uh, infested with Chinese characters, you know, because that's what I was more unfamiliar with, that it made translating these sources very laborious. So, mm. yeah. And then there's the very specialized vocabulary and usage that you find in any language that is associated with the arcane subject of numismatics. And even my Korean translators, both human native speakers and, the, of course, the online translation machines often had difficulty translating or understanding certain passages just because of the numismatic language that they use. You know, industrial processes involving, you know, making coins and things like that. Yeah, the dye processes. Right, exactly. Yes, yeah, so you have to learn all that language. So, so, and that's, I mean, the, the overwhelming thing to me as I look at this, the, the book is South Korean Coins in the Era of Development, 400 pages English throughout. I mean, it's not, yes. you know, any, anybody who picks this up here in the U.S., if you're listening in the U.S., you're not going to have any difficulty in accessing the information. You've done all the work for that. Um, you know, what propelled you, what made you decide to write i mean this is this is the exhaustive authoritative book and i know you might say well there's still some information you need to get we'll talk about that later but <laughs> i mean this is you know every series every everything patterns and commemoratives and all this there's even story of some banknote stuff i mean it's it's just amazing but this was this was a journey that's twenty years in the making. It seems like, yes, you know how how did you get that start and and go from the collecting to the uh, authorship, which is a very different uh, domain. Well, I think really it was to, I mean, I've you know I've been a collector, like I said, of you know South Korean coins for about twenty years. But you know one of the reasons I wrote the book was to basically alleviate myself of my own ignorance about the coins, which was driven home by the rather noticeably different experiences I encountered in terms of trying to gain information about, say, my Lincoln Sen collection versus my South Korea collection. If I wanted to learn more about Lincoln Sen, there were a lot of relatively recently published books that I could access, in addition to some de decent internet sources. Everything that you would want to know about the Lincoln Sen series was and is available. But by contrast, all I had for my South Korea collection were the individual coin listings, you know, in the standard catalog of world coins. And that just gave basic information on specifications and mintages, although very helpful. And we do appreciate the standard catalog. 
So I decided to, to address my own profound lack of information available about these coins, really in any language, but especially in the English language, by researching these coins for the growing number of people who seem to be more interested in these coins. And this has been going on for about the past 15 years. And the interest is really in the values also. That's another reason why I wrote the book was because I noticed that market values were ticking up really over the past 10 to 15 years. That, you know, increase in auction and sale activity to me seemed to indicate that maybe more collectors worldwide were becoming more interested in South Korean coins. And I thought that, you know, a standard work on the subject just might be helpful. And I was just fascinated by the literature that I was able to get my hands on initially. So that's why I really wanted to delve into it. And you're right. I want to make this the authoritative um, source for South Korean coins. And that's why I, I went so hard on it. And that's why I... I really went for it. I, I try to get everything I could get on these on these coins. I had to limit myself, of course, to what I call the era of development, which is the, I guess, 1959 to about the late 1980s, because that's kind of like the really important part. And that's also where most of the, uh, what collectors would consider the key dates originated from too, from that period from about the late 1950s to the, the late 1980s also. Okay. Um, and you, um, you even go into like, I mean, you have 2020 related stuff. So this is, this is really on the cutting edge as far it's as very that recent. Goes. Yes. Yes. Um, I, I want to talk about, and maybe this is a little, um, you know, out of place, but, um, what, well, what kept you motivated as you, as you work through official and unofficial sources and the, and all the various obstacles along the way? I know that um, you you had um, I, I referenced the unofficial and official sources because there's there's a there wasn't you always you didn't always have uh, great cooperation in um, the official ivory towers, as it were. How did yeah. you get around that? <laughs> well, uh, what kept me going? I guess, Jeff, sheer ignorance, sheer ignorance of the enormity of the task before me. There's there's no confidence to equal it, really. I mean, if you don't know what you're about to get into, but you're enjoying what you're doing at the same time, you don't, time just kind of flies. You kind of just keep working, keep doing it. Maybe not knowing the enormity of the task before me was what kept me going. And since I was having fun finding new information all the time, I, I just kept going. I just loved it. It was it was really, really a labor of love. People say that when they look at the book. They say, this must have been a labor of love. Yep, you nailed it. That's right, guys. That's, that's pretty much what the book was. I really enjoyed the whole process, the writing process. I, maybe some parts were a little bit slow, but I definitely stuck with it. And it was, yeah, I got through it all. It was great, to be honest. The whole, the whole process was pretty good. And and you even got to visit Korea. It seems like in 2019, at least. Maybe there were other visits I missed oh, reference yes. to. Um, how or did the pandemic affect the publication schedule? And and you're sort of bringing this, uh, you know, across the finish line. You know, Jeff, I don't think that the pandemic really affected my book too much. It, I don't think it really did because right around that time, 2000 to 2001, was when I was really really writing the book. That was the writing period for the book. I had a lot of my resources. I was still getting some more from my research assistants in Korea, but I think it didn't really affect the schedule of my book. It might've delayed my book only because it might've delayed uh, a book that was being published under I Assure Group 
in gotcha. prior to mine. So, yes. So yeah. 2020, it, it, 2021, yes. you were, you were, you were writing this in the thick of the pandemic. So it's oh, not yes. like it kept you. I was working from home. So, so was everybody else. And it was no big deal. <laughs> it gotcha. was not a problem. Yeah. Because 2019, nothing was knocked, was nothing was locked down in Asia. Sure. You know, that started in November and I was there in the summer when I conducted my interviews with Mr. O, who was a former, you know, Korean uh, mint engraver during that, you know, vital period of time at the Korean mint. Yeah. I, man, I, I wish there was a mint directors conference there in uh, maybe 10 years ago. And I would have so loved to have gone. I, I didn't get to go. Um, yes, but there was, I am, yes. huh? Yes, there was, there was a mint directors conference there, I believe. Yeah. Uh, and um, I, so I'm saving up my, Juan, is that how it's pronounced? W it is Juan. the one. Yep, and, the one. and I'm saving up my one, but then I started because um, you know eventually I'll get there. I didn't count it up today before doing the interview, but I have a little box with the you know different travel money, and but then I got worried when I looked at the book. I was surprised to learn about this coinless plan, which would push cash payments aside for digital payments. Um, So that surprised me in reading the book. Um, What most surprised you in writing the book? I guess the fact that I could find as many resources as I could. That was really the surprising thing. I got into this and thinking, okay, maybe I can just write a little bit about the, uh, commemorative coins. Yeah, because there's some there's some really good sources for that. A former Korean mint engraver by the name of Joe Byung-soo wrote a book back in 2006. He was there at the very beginning, like the beginning of the early one coins. And he wrote a book and it was kind of like it's I think still the seminal work on this, you know, this subject. It was a little light in some areas, so I took his his work and kind of added a couple of more sources to it and wrote this stuff and put it up online. Uh, yeah, you know. I... And and unfortunately, he's no longer with us. You couldn't. No, go... he is not. I believe he passed away in 2014. Yes. Yeah. So you couldn't you couldn't go ask for for more stuff. But you, yeah. you mentioned putting stuff online. You have a website. Um, I, I want to say it's Dokdo something. Uh, we can certainly research. Put... Yes. Yeah. Da- dash research. research. Sure, sure, yeah, sure. Research, yeah, and, yeah, and I, then I, I guess, go, well, "What's Dokdo?" And then I delved into this <laughs> this whole the the you know the the. It was another research project that I that yeah. I had done previously. Um. Anyway, so I just added my numismatic uh, writings onto that too. But I yeah. guess the most I guess the the surprising thing was the fact that I could find a lot of sources of information, even though the Bank of Korea, which controls what the Korean Mint can share with the with the public even though the Bank of Korea sort of has uh, put, placed an embargo really on sharing a lot of their information, you know, I cannot access any of their archives, you know, their actual archives, but they did produce a lot of literature. And I don't think that the, uh, the Bank of Korea ever intended many people to, uh, to find the research and the uh, literature that I found, but I was able to find it. And my research assistants really helped me with that. Um, you know, it, I'm looking for things like production floor records, you know, coin project status updates and other things like that, you know, other related internal documents that I could use for my book. Some of that stuff was available through another source. So I was able to find it in different places, but there's a lot left uncovered, actually. But now <laughs> maybe maybe for another date, maybe for another time. 
Yeah, you you didn't have to engage in any sort of numismatic espionage. The pe- the people that helped you aren't going to um, get in trouble. I hope. No, no, not at all, not at all. They they were not able to help me too much. The people that helped me basically found published and unpublished documents that were sitting in disused electronic files or were you know collecting dust on you know in library shelves in in Korea. I guess you know they published prodigious amounts of information, lots of different information that they probably didn't expect some guy from Minnesota to come upon and, you know, dust off and start writing about. They really, I don't think they expected anybody to find all the stuff they, you know, I found. They never told me I couldn't use these things. So I'm putting it in the book. Awesome. And, and yeah. And, and I mean, as I, I think said before this uh, in email, you know, you, you've explored this topic at a granular level, but I, you know, that's, it takes this, dedication and labor of love type uh, research and effort to change numismatics, uh, numismatic scholarship. And I, and I think, uh, you know, in the scheme of things, you know, I, I think about maybe what, not that coin world is the be all, be all and end all, but, you know, what do we cover internationally? A lot of Canada, the, the UK, you know, maybe some European stuff, a little bit of, you know, auctions, new issues, this and that. There's not a lot of, maybe awareness or coverage of, of Asian numismatics. No, and there isn't. Yes. Yeah. This makes okay. that easy now. I mean, if I wanted to write about, you know, anything from the last say 70, 60 plus years uh, in South Korea, I, I, I don't need to go anywhere else. You've got all the information. Oh yes. And, and the, the sources are, yes, that's right. And all the sources are cited in the original Korean Hangul and Chinese character sources, if you know, citations, if you need to use that, you can go back and actually you can go to the uh, webpage that's listed in the, the uh, bibliography of my book and go to that webpage, check it out on the internet, and you'll see all of those citations in a web format that you can cut and paste and check the sources. So all those sources are right there. You can go to the newspaper archives. You can find the original Korean documentation using all those sources. Yeah. It's, it's a level of transparency that um, I think is envious for, for somebody who's a serious collector in any topic, you know, to be able to bring that all together into a, a clearinghouse um, with ease, uh, you know, yes, is, yes. is, is uh, again, uh, Herculean effort. Um, but th- this was sort of rooted in a series of articles you published at your website at coin Correct. week, other, other places. Uh, if, if anybody by chance has seen those articles, not that they shouldn't go out and buy this book anyway, but if, if they have seen that, what's, I mean, that's a, hundredth of of what's information is in the book i mean it's yeah. it's quite different right there's there's a lot of uh, disparity there right there's a quite a bit of disparity there yes i i give, gave it an initial like uh, overview of south korean coin collecting for uh i think it was coinage magazine back in the february 2017 issue of that magazine and uh the other ones yeah so there's some trace of that early writing in this book but the this book is so much larger of an effort. All of that writing has been completely redone and huge sections have been added to any of that previous writing that you can find on the internet. Certainly. And, uh, um, we, uh, <laughs> pause to say, uh, rest Ed Ryder, rest in peace. I know. Yes, uh, indeed. Yes. He, he, was, he, the, was, the, he was the, he was the first, that's right. He was a huge influence. You know, he, uh, he helped a lot. He was the editor 
just before he passed away, sadly, uh, that that helped me get my first um, numismatic article in print. Yes, the famous oh. Ed writer from the former uh, numismatic article from the uh, New York Times. I think he was the editor of that. Yes, yes, for sure. And uh, he did uh, the book that was, um, you know, the New York Times, like sort of like coins for dummies, although that's you know, Ron Guff did that one, but anyway, uh, so very good. You mentioned the, um, I want to go back to the market for these coins because, um, you know, I I even actually have uh, a a friend in local coin club who who has known Korean for a long time Hmm. and you got to meet her at the, at the show and she got the book and, and all that, Um, you know, I, I guess I'm I'm wondering if somebody gets excited about these coins and they're here in the U.S. I know we have listeners elsewhere, but you know we're just that's the the majority. How is somebody going to find this stuff? Because it's very I know I've come across a scattered number of uh, Korean coins, especially um, of of this modern era, the era of development of you as you've titled it. Right. Um, mostly the uh, the Olympic program for the 88 games and and a you know few handful others I, like one of my favorites is the uh, there was like a shooting championship or something in the yes, 80s the 1978 yes the 1978 okay yeah yeah, yeah yeah 42nd world shooting championships yeah. yeah and and i i thought you know especially in today's climate which i understand but you know i can't imagine there's too many coins with guns on them even though in that context it's you know, fairly innocuous. It's just target practice and all yeah, that. I think it, I think it's appropriate. Yeah, it's yeah. just a, you know, it's it is the International Sport Shooting Federation. That's an you know an official Olympic level you know sport. So yeah. yeah, yeah. So so that design jumped out to me in in my numismatic travels, if you will, and I have that somewhere. But but you know, I have not seen a lot of these coins. Um, am I going to have to go to a Huadong auction? Is there a, <laughs> you know, uh, and you know, the, the folks at Punsang Huadong, we've, you know, JC Lee and, and all them, they've been super kind over the years, Comsco, but you know, is that what I have to do? Or, you know, are they even going to mess with the certain level coin or is there like an eBay equivalent for in South Korea or how do people, how should people go about looking for these? Uh, well, it depends on what you're looking for. If you're looking for very rare commemorative coins, such as uh, specimen strikes, different types of uh, date varieties, yeah, you're going to have to go to Korea to get those, and you're probably going to have to buy them at Huadong Auctions and other uh, numismatic uh, places like that in Korea. However, it is my contention, Jeff, that the many of the best examples of these coins can still be found outside of Korea, here in the North American numismatic market. Although the internet has allowed many of these coins now to migrate migrate back to Korea, where collecting coins has really started to increase in popularity over the, really the past 20 years. You know, eBay's global shipping program in recent years has allowed even more Korean collectors and dealers access to the eBay platforms in North America and Europe. And this will, I think, will only accelerate the migration of these coins back to Korea, in my opinion, and it also accelerate the uh, currently rising prices for these coins. But I still think that the best examples with good eye appeal of the circulation coins, the key date circulation coins, are still to be found here in the U.S. market. It really, I still believe that that's the case. In in the Mark Lovemo collection, <laughs> ah, many of them are in my collection, indeed. <laughs> cool, 
Cool. Uh, so, um, is, is there, um, I, I guess, you know, you, you mentioned the, the Lincoln sense, you're, you're, you're collecting those alongside the, uh, South Korean coins. Yes. And, and some other world series of coins too, but yeah, mm. yeah, that's Fun. right. Uh, and, um, is there a, what's next, I guess then, because, you know, is, do you go before the era of development? Do you extend your look to the other Korea? What's your, you know, what's, where do you, where do you, do you think you're going to point your uh, research digging next? Well, I think what maybe collectors of these coins and fans of these coins might be benefited by would be maybe a price guide that's just specifically for south korean uh like the big key dates and some of the more popular commemorative coins maybe a price guide possibly you know just more uh whittled down to prices and so forth based on huadong auctions which are kind of not easy to find online because they have you know of course there's a language barrier involved there it's only searchable with uh with korean text or chinese character text so maybe a price guide would be next i really think that somebody should do some research on contemporary Japan, 1946 to the present date. That would be mm. amazing because mm. I don't see a lot of text resources for contemporary Japan. A lot of older coins, of course, all the older coins are covered. You know, the, you know, the round coins with the square holes in the middle, all yeah. of those are covered for China, Japan, Korea, but there really is no standard work. I don't think at least in the English language for those contemporary Japanese coins, that would be kind of the next kind of frontier i think somebody should get into that i don't know if it'll Fun. be me but you know. <laughs> i it's funny you mentioned that because i had a collector of uh, japanese coins message me today he was in japan um not too long ago and he he said oh i heard about this catalog blah 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 in japanese and i'm like i don't know anything about it so maybe maybe somebody else is thinking along your lines and uh, if we can track that down, we will get. Uh, <laughs> we oh, will absolutely! Get, yeah, we that'd be the, wonderful. Uh, we will get the interview, the uh, author of that, on the show uh, to talk to us as well. But oh, please we thank- do. I'd, l- I'd <laughs> love to know what their source is. Yes. <laughs> well, I'll let you know. But in the meantime, thank you so much for being here today. Uh, and you know, the book is wonderful. I presume it can be ordered through docto-research.com. You That's- can people people can actually order it just by contacting me at my website. I mean, okay. not my website, I'm sorry, my, my email, just M-L-O-V-M-O at hotmail.com. M-L-O-V-M-O at hotmail.com. Perfect. That'd so, be the best way. Yeah. And, and there's, uh, they're going pretty fast, right? I mean, somebody has got to act quick, I think. Yes, they are selling. It is a very limited print run of only 500 copies and we've sold many, many so far and I'm getting re- orders every day. Uh, hey, hey, that's great. So thank you again. We appreciate this. And um, it was great to meet you at the show. And uh, it turns out, I think it was that um, you had emailed me several years back. And so it was nice to have that come full circle. And of course, it's great to have you on the podcast. Yes, great to have met you too, Jeff. And thanks for this opportunity. My pleasure. And that was our interview with Mark Lovemo, author of South Korean Coins in the Era of Development. Uh, We thank him so much for his support and uh, working with us to get on the show. Uh, Boy, what a a neat topic. What a great interview. Um, You know, I'm... 
look, I'm never, I'm not going to say too much bad about anybody in this regard, but he was just a super nice guy. Uh, it's always nice when you have somebody who's genuinely nice and enthusiastic and knowledgeable about the topic. And he, he was all of those things. So hopefully you enjoyed that as much as I did, uh, in, uh, preparing that and, and talking to him. Certainly did. And it was a great interview. Appreciate you taking the time to do that and giving it to us right here. But uh, I want to certainly thank the listeners for sticking along with us here. We're glad to have you back for the uh, Coin World podcast. We appreciate the comments and we welcome your comments. Make sure you reach out to us at the uh, first opportunity. We welcome your ideas, your suggestions, and uh, the comments that you have to give to us right here. But right now, the clock on the wall says we've got to move on to getting the next Coin World issue moved out to the printer here. So thanks once again for your support. We look forward to talking to you again for the next podcast. But in the meantime, happy collecting. Thank you for listening to the Coin World podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next week. Coin World Plus is your new way to collect. Manage your inventory, digitally authenticate coins, create your want list, buy and sell coins, and much more. Learn more about Coin World Plus at coinworldplus.com or download the app now at Google Play or the App Store.